Welcome to the Ignite Physio Podcast. This podcast inspires physiotherapists and other health professionals to continue learning and growing in their practice and career. We explore professional issues with a fresh lens and delve into topics that help to expand our capacity for growth. This is episode number 36, and I'm Andrew. And I'm Maxie. And today, we're continuing our conversation about the topic of car insurance regulations for physiotherapists in Alberta. Um, In our last session, we had a great conversation with Simon and Julie about some of the basics around the DTPR, or the Diagnostic Treatment Protocol Regulations, and the IMC, or the Injury Management Consultant. So, in today's episode, we're going to be talking with Simon again because he was so great the first time. We brought him back for two. Thanks for having me back. (laughs) (laughs) Along with Jeff Begg. uh, And Jeff is a practicing clinician and IMC from Edmonton. Uh, We're going to be going through some of the common and maybe not so common challenges that clinicians will encounter when treating MVA patients. Um, And uh, hopefully have some really, I know we will just speaking to these guys the last few minutes, we're going to have some fantastic morsels for everybody. Um, And those of you who are tuning in from outside of Alberta, just because we're talking about Alberta regulations uh, does not mean that what we are going to be talking about does not apply to you. Um, it's it's uh, good practice um, across the board for MVA patients or maybe more complex patients as well. Um, so just in terms of giving you an intro to our fellows here today, Simon is a physiotherapist and clinic owner in Edmonton, Alberta, and currently serves as a council president with Physiotherapy Alberta. Simon was involved in the working committee in the creation of the Diagnostic and Treatment Protocol Regulation for Alberta. Um, and Jeff is also a physical therapist uh, and clinic owner from Edmonton, and he was involved with Simon in the creation of the DTPR. So um, Simon and Jeff, welcome to the show today. Thank you. Thanks. All right. So I know uh, Simon shared a little bit about why he's passionate about this topic, and uh, Jeff, we wanted to give you an opportunity to share about uh, what this topic means to you. Well, um, practicing uh, with motor vehicle accident patients for um, many years, there's a lot of challenges with it and seeing the situation we were in before 2004 with certain you know, regulations and then the drastic change that occurred in 2004, it's really changed how we do things. And um, there's, there's certainly some things about the protocols, the DTPR protocols that uh, we operate under now that are vastly better than the way the situation used to be. And there's also some elements within the regulations that I think people don't um, appreciate, physiotherapists don't appreciate well enough, uh, and the IMC register is one of them. And so now having worked on that system for more than a decade, um, it's a great opportunity for us to uh, both um, to further the care of our patients, but also it's, um, it's a recognition of our profession of, of being able to provide expert opinion in a challenging case. Well, it's good. Well, we got a, we got a lot of topics to cover today. So, uh, you know, we're going to start off with a really nice, simple topic, which is the uh, topic of diagnosis of a WAD injury uh, and specifically around uh, the changes that have taken place um, in terms of uh, not only focusing on the cervical spine but also on the the T-spine and L-spine and I was wondering if you guys could comment on what those changes look like. Well I think historically um, most people are familiar with WAD diagnosis as defined by the Quebec Task Force. That was the initial way of classifying injuries to the cervical spine uh, post motor vehicle collision from 2004 until the amendments came into place to the to the DTPR within the last few years. And there was confusion in the world of motor vehicle collisions about how do we classify injuries to the rest of the spine? Why are wide injuries easily classified and injuries to the thoracic spine and lumbar spine aren't? So to try and add some clarity to 
um, what Albertans were entitled to as far as number of treatment visits, and then also to tidy up the classification of injuries to the other parts of the spine, the uh, working group of physicians, physiotherapists, chiropractors, and government decided to start classifying injuries to the thoracic and lumbar spine along similar diagnostic criteria as traditional WAD diagnoses were. So where it gets cloudy is this, is this an actual definitive medical diagnosis, a whiplash-associated disorder to the lumbar spine, which would be something that was just crafted within Alberta? Or is it simply we're just classifying people's injuries for the sake of being able to put them into, into a certain group for ease of applying the, the regulations down the road? So. That's my one-sided take of it, having been part of the group that, that decided to go that, that route, but I'm anxious to hear Jeff's take on it as well. Well, so I think it's fine. I think the, like you said, I think the, the classification that we're, we're asked to diagnose thoracic and lumbar injuries as WADs, and it makes the protocols work the way they're intended, okay? There was, I think there was a bit of a flaw in the original protocols because um, having a, you know, if you had a, a low back sprain or a strain, um, they wanted you to get 21 visits if you had objective signs, just like you would if you had a WAD2 in the cervical spine. But you didn't because a sprain or a strain grade one of the lumbar spine only gives you 10 visits. That was a flaw. So they've corrected it this way. It doesn't change the fact, though, that when you tell a patient um, that you have a WAD2 injury of your lumbar spine, if they were to go on Google and search that up, they're not going to find anything because the term WAD stands for whiplash-associated disorder, and whiplash is the motion that a neck goes through. The rest of your spine does not go through that motion. So technically... We're, we have to be careful about we're in this, this quandary where we are supposed to tell our patient their diagnosis, and then how do we explain to them that it's a technical thing but not an actual medical thing? The government's put that in us, uh, us in that situation, and um, there's a potential there for us to have trouble with the patient in that case because they're going to be confused. Um, it hasn't, to my knowledge, it hasn't happened at this point, but it's there, so I think we should just be aware of it. Um, but I am in support of, you know, the idea of the protocols working better because of this this new system, yeah. Because otherwise, before, you, you could have had a nice, unhappy uh, lumbar discogenic uh, presentation and only end up with 10 treatments and now actually be worse off than if you had a, a WAD2 injury, correct? Correct, yeah. So how do, you, uh, how do you explain that to a patient then when you're going through that? So um, sometimes, you, so telling the patient what's wrong with him is a whole topic for a whole other max would be happy to talk about this <laughs> how you explain what's going on with someone you know for example saying you have something's broken in your low back you know there's some ligaments broken in your low back clearly we know that's a bad way of starting right so how do we how do we how do we approach a subject of well you have a wad two injury to your lumbar spine that that actually doesn't mean anything so i'll explain it to you differently do, how deeply do we want to get into that with a patient on the first day, right? But very clearly, we, we need to tell patients, here's what your insurance company is going to explain to you. In other words, I have diagnosed you with this injury. It approves you automatically for this many visits. That's one conversation. What actually they need to understand about their injury might be a separate conversation. Yeah, and probably three or four, right? And, and sometimes we're... we're uh, patients have seen confused or anxious about the amount of information that's being barraged on them on that first day. It sometimes is simple enough to go back to the diagnostic criteria and just say, your reflexes are normal. You have no key muscle weakness. You have no signs of any nerve injury today. You have loss of movement and you have tenderness when I touch your spine. That means that you have a WAD2 injury and that then entitles you to this 
It doesn't limit you to that exclusively. This is a working diagnosis on day one, but this is the information that I'll then be passing on to the insurer. And the majority of patients are going to look at you with raised eyebrows and you'll follow back up with, we'll spend lots of time talking about this. Here's the most important information for you to take home today and we'll pick, come back with three questions next time and we'll address those for sure. Or that, that type of approach sometimes works. And for others, unfortunately, I mean, and, and I'm sure everyone around the table sees it on a daily basis, patients are still really stuck in the tissue at fault model. They wanna know exactly what tissue is hurt, how much it's hurt, and how long it's gonna take for that to recover. And as Jeff so clearly articulated, that can be a huge challenge on, uh, on, on day one, day 20, day 68, whatever day it is. So. So speaking of the patient education side of things, I mean, you know, when we tell patients, well, you, you have up to 21 visits within the protocols and, uh, you know, now there's this expectation that, well, I'm going to get 21 visits. And so how do you um, help temper that expectation that they may be very well better by visit 10? Um, and yet you have some patients that are giving pushback because they say, well, I'm entitled to this number of visits because I pay for my insurance. And... Uh, that's what I want, right? So how, how do you guys handle those kind of conversations? Well, I, I might say, well, you might be entitled to 12 fillings under your insurance plan with your dentist, but do you really want 12? What if you only need two, you know? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, the patients need to understand that um, y you're entitled to whatever gets you better. And there's actually some literature that would suggest, and I say this to patients, that the more treatment we do, the longer it takes you to get better. If I were to prescribe you four sessions a week instead of two, I'd have to assume that it would take you longer to get better, not quicker. And, and I'll say that to patients so they understand that. Um, but at the end of the day, when someone comes back and says, um, uh, well, I know, uh, you know, I know you're saying that I'm doing better, but don't I still have six visits left? The question would be, you know, you would have to have a conversation. What do you think we need those six visits for? Is there something that you haven't returned to yet? Um, is there a challenge that you haven't met yet? Let's talk about that. And if they can articulate that, fine. But uh, sometimes patients are just saying, but can't I just have those last six visits as massage? <laughs> and so, yeah. so now we have to, you know, we have to explain to them that, well, there's a third party involved and it wouldn't be right to ask that third party to pay for something that you don't actually need with it. And I think we have to be very clear with our patients to let them know that that's not okay um, if we can't justify it. So having that conversation or, or sort of priming them for that early on in the process is helpful because then they, you don't have to have that conversation on, on visit to whatever. Yeah, when you're planning for you're planning for discharge and then a whole litany of new complaints come up so that they'll be able to address something with those last entitled visits or so. I, I echo everything Jeff's saying and often use the the uh, let's prove them wrong. You know, let's you're going to get better faster than the 21 that they think you're going to need that they approve for everyone. Be a super healer and get better in eight work hard and we can get there so i think it depends on the person you're interacting with of course and then what types of motivational things and educational opportunities you want to take with that person but it's different than being prescribed 14 days worth of antibiotics because you need a full course of antibiotics versus here's a hundred pain relievers just in case you need some pain relief right there's there's a big difference in what in what the approved treatment sessions are supposed to be used for yeah both of you, it sounds like you're acknowledging that there's individual differences with folks. Um, you know, you're you're going to be, um, you know, taking them, taking them as as an individual and their concerns. However, you're also engaging them in the process, right? Like, you know, Jeff, I like the way you put it. In in that, well, so what 
what would we need these for? Is there something we haven't addressed? Like, please tell me, like, honestly, really, like genuinely, tell me that. So the other thing we have to keep in mind, too, is, you know, 21 visits isn't what you're entitled to. Um, you know, the, the, you're actually entitled to up to $50,000 of care. So, um, you know, that's another way we may come at it and say, just because you're entitled to this doesn't mean you need it. So either way, the, the, the idea is that uh, we have to make a very clear um, assessment of our patient and understand what, um, what they need to return to so that when they maybe at the end of six weeks there, we think they're doing better, we can say to them, these are the things that you said were a problem at the start and they're not anymore. And so it's very, it's, it can be very tricky to, um, to determine when a patient is saying, um, I, still, I still feel like I've got some problem, and yet they haven't been able to articulate it. Um, it's, it's very easy to get confused and not know where was this patient when I started with them, unless you have a very clear list of perhaps functional outcome measures that you've taken, um, a list of reported ADL deficits that they have, what activities do you normally do that you're not doing right now, things like that. So... Uh, coming back to the patient and saying, based on what you told me on day one, we're there. We've arrived. Um, what am I missing? And you're not accusing them of not telling the whole story. You're just saying, I'm trying to understand based on what you've told me. Fill in the gaps for me. And so, anyways, that, that's what we call in, our, in my practice, we call it case management. Making sure that you take care of the patient's case from start to finish, which requires time and thought. For sure. So just because, uh, and it's totally my ignorance with with the protocols because I haven't been practicing within them for, I mean, ever. I don't think I practice within these protocols. But um, if you if you're you're saying, yep, yeah, you know, after 16 treatments, you're good to go, and you know they have the like, is there is there some sort of once you discharge them, are they done? Like that's it, goodbye, see you later, or you know, how does that how how was is there any follow up allowed after that? Hey, I just wanted to have a quick pause to introduce you to today's podcast sponsor, Soul. They're off-the-shelf moldable insoles, and it's the brand of insoles that I recommend to my patients and have for years. The reason I recommend them is that they're heat moldable by the patient, they've got a great arch support, and they come with options to help with different foot issues. It's really easy for customers to order, and when you refer them to Soul, they get free shipping and 10% off. Make sure to check them out at yoursoul.com forward slash health dash professionals that's y-o-u-r-s-o-l-e dot com forward slash health dash professionals all right back to the show yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, there's there's certainly cases where patients are discharged. We send an AB4 report in saying the condition has resolved, and then three months later they come back and they say my my pain came back. So the, there is a process for that. Generally speaking, the insurer is going to wonder why, and so they may just simply ask for a physio report saying tell us what's going on, and we report to them what happened. They were fine for three weeks, and then they returned to soccer, and their knee started bothering them again. Okay, fine. Um, sometimes they'll say we want a medical. Uh, prescription now so we want to know if their doctor thinks they need physio that's within the insurer's right to ask that question so absolutely there's a way to get um, to be treated again within that two years um, and which is why I think when we do close a file and and uh, do an a before and say this this condition is now in full remission and not no and we've met all goals um, we do have to be clear that we think we've achieved that um, and and if the patient hasn't got there fair enough we might see him again, and their case isn't closed, file done. That's the, I think that's the bottom line. At two years, it is, 
But anytime before that, if they come in, we have to make a reasonable explanation. If they say, I was fine for four and a half months, and then I went downhill skiing, and my neck started bothering me again, we would have to then decide whether this was a random event that had nothing to do with their accident. That's not an easy thing to decide, but we have to be aware that that's an issue to discuss. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the insurer is going to be looking to you as a therapist to say, okay, what's, what's your medical opinion here, right? Right. So let's talk about uh, the patient who uh, you're treating under, say, has a WAD2, and, and they're not progressing uh, like you think they should be. Um, tell us, uh, you know, how would you guys approach that? Um, what steps would you take? Yeah, well, I would um, discuss first and foremost with the patient the fact that you think they're hitting a bit of a wall or a plateau and then try and see if you can come up with some common ground as to maybe why they're not and if if not or even if you are then the protocols do have the ability to trigger that injury management consultant referral where you can ask for that expert second opinion as to diagnosis or for you know treatment ideas or strategies or you know hey help me out with with this patient who's hit this plateau for this reason so you provide the the IMC with a background referral letter and consultation and then the patient will go and see the IMC for some for a thorough assessment and then advice back to the patient and then also to the therapist in writing so it can, it, it's a really, really useful tool to get a second pair of, of eyes looking at it. The patient is you know, taken outside of perhaps what they're used to experiencing within the medical model following their collision or injury. And then they're given this opportunity to, to seek this expert second opinion. Oh, great. This is going to shed some light on my condition. It's going to help in that next stage of the recovery. So it's, it's a pretty straightforward process if you know that you can use it rather than continuing, 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 or working within uh, your own clinic. Say, oh, you know, can you have a quick peek at this person and give me your two cents on them? It's much more thorough and in-depth than, than those organic um, ref interclinic referrals. Well, yeah, I, I agree with what you said about it. I, I do think we should point out that just because someone isn't progressing well enough at 21, vis or 20, uh, 21 days or three weeks, it doesn't necessarily mean you should do an IMC uh, referral. Um, those of us that have a, a vast experience and a multiple, a, a multiple different treatment approaches available to us um, will change the treatment plan, and uh, as, as is expected as a professional. Um, those who have a, 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 a more recent experience treating these patients might not have as vast a, a, a number of options, and so that might be appropriate for them to uh, make a, a, and ask for a second opinion. So I, I can't say enough for you know what a what a great benefit this process is for someone who is struggling with I'm not quite sure what the diagnosis is here, um, and so we all deal with that in our practices always till the end of your retirement, just in case you're wondering, okay? <laughs> we all deal with that. So it's not something to be ashamed of, but um, to recognize that in this case, unlike every other funder, there is no other funder that says, if you're having a challenge with this patient, we're gonna pay you to refer to someone else to get an opinion. We're gonna pay them to give that opinion. That is excellent, excellent quality care. Um, and uh, it supports our patients um, to the utmost, and it helps the insurer because it ensures that they're not going to be spending time spinning their wheels on treatment that isn't necessary. So the, the idea of using this process is excellent. It, it, when to use it is unique to each clinician, um, and 
patients that aren't progressing is one reason why you might make that referral, right? Um, I think we should also talk about uh, the idea that um, there may be a case where you don't, um, that you're not sure that you've made the correct diagnosis of whether they're in protocols or out. And so uh, if we can speak with that for a moment. You know, I think that's a good one because I think that, uh, you know, I think if we can alleviate the stress of uh, any new grad treating an MVA patient, and I know myself personally, you know, when I saw my first few uh, where there was such a pressure to know, okay, did I classify them the right way? Are they a WAD too? I think there might be some neuroscience, but it's hard to tell because they're, you know, really lit up and that, you know, they might be a WAD three and now all of a sudden there's this pressure to really, you know, uh, get the right diagnosis. So I, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Cause I think that's a, that's an excellent topic. Well, let's, let's add some anxiety to everyone for a minute. Okay. <laughs> because, oh, because, no. because here's the thing. If you, if you diagnose a patient off the street with a WAD two, and then two, three weeks later, you realize they actually have numbness down their arm. They have a, they have some nerve inv involvement. No big deal. You start treating it. You're going to keep treating them. It's not a problem. Um, the trouble is that there's this thing called the minor injury regulation. And so you need to understand what that is. And that simply is that if a patient has, uh, we'll call it an in-protocols injury, then the minor injury regulation applies to them. And at this point, that means that there, you know, any damages for pain and suffering is limited to around $5,000. So if you diagnose someone with a WAD2 injury and they're in the protocols now, they're subject to the minor injury regulation. If three weeks later, the funny feeling that they had in their thumb at the time of assessment has become full-blown C8 radiculopathy. They now have an injury to which the protocols do not apply, and therefore they technically don't, they shouldn't have the minor injury regulation applied to them. Now that's a legal thing, it has nothing to do with what we do, but um, it does affect the patient's ability to, for example, fast forward a year and a half and they've had 18 months of disability and pain, but their original diagnosis is WAD2, so they're told, well, you're subject to the $5,000 cap, and you know, I don't know why you're not getting better. WAD2s get better, right? So that should create anxiety when we're diagnosing because we're making a legal distinction. And for the, and to my knowledge, for the first time, uh, in, in certainly in Alberta, maybe in Canada, where physiotherapists are given the, the ability to legally diagnose under a government regulation equal to a physician or a chiropractor. Okay, so that's a big responsibility, and the IMZ process helps you say, I'm not sure if I did that right. I'm going to get another opinion on this. That's a great thing. And I know we were chatting just before we, uh, you know, jumped on this uh, podcast today around, um, you know, uh, getting an IMC uh, done um, and that three-week alerting, you know, sort of that first 21 days. Um, you know, what happens uh, after that first 21 days? What, what, what do we do? Well, so... Um, you know, Simon can will recall that the, this idea of three weeks was set up as alerting factors. What does the research say about people who don't get better? Okay, that was alerting factors, right? Back then it was female gender, age 40 years old, things like that. So um, the idea was if at three weeks your patient's not doing well, you should do something and change the plan. That's where three weeks came in. It's a great idea. It's what we should be doing. Um, in the... Uh, DTPR regulation that talks about the IMC process under section 16, and you should know this, you should be able to speak this to a, a, an insurance person over the phone. Um, section 16.2 uh, states that um, uh, if, if your client is diagnosed um, with a, an injury and, and you don't think that they're progressing well by 21 days, you should seek to reassess them and, and you might want to send for an injury management consultation. What they're saying there is get on these things early. Get some, get some second opinion early. Don't wait till 90 days. Start at three weeks. 
that's not to say that after three weeks, an IMC is not permitted. In fact, there's nowhere in the regulations that says that. The IMC is permitted right up to 90 days. When we should use it, probably is sooner than later. That's really, I think, the intent here. Yeah, and then I think just to add to that is that the, I, the IMC was not intended to get more treatment approved. It's not part of the approvals process. It, it has its purpose and its role, and then it's up to the treating therapist to then advocate for the appropriate treatment plan, whether that involves more sessions after the 90 days or a change in venue to a multidisciplinary center or, or something along those lines. So I think the, uh, the idea of the alerting factors is great. The, the thinking also that this person isn't progressing the way that I would expect them to, maybe a, a actual um, official consult with an IMC to help me with the diagnosis and with treatment plans would be a good idea. And thinking of doing those things sooner rather than rather than later. I think an insurance adjuster or company is going to be much more engaged with you if they're seeing these things done in a timely fashion rather than towards the end of the process. What do you do in the situation where, you know, you are... Um you, you put the request in for, or, or you're requesting an IMC consult, you've uh, you filled out the necessary forms, you've, say, you know, are on the phone with an adjuster and, and you're saying, look, I think this is, you know, the rationale for this, and you're getting pushback on that, or, or they're saying, look, we're not going to cover that. What, how, do you, how do you handle that? Because, I mean, I've, I've been in that situation, and I think it's, uh, it's one that can be um, a little bit sticky, right, because you're trying to create a positive working relationship, and, uh, and how would you guys handle that? Well, I think we, I, this is why I think that if you're treating MVA uh, patients in Alberta and you don't have the DTPR in a binder on your desk or a link to the PDF on your desktop, then you're missing out because I think we just have to really speak to the regulations. Um, so when you say when we're requesting an IMC, let's be clear, we're requesting that our colleague, the IMC physiotherapist, um, sees this patient. We're not requesting that the insurers does it because there's nowhere in the regulations that says we need to request that. In fact, what it says is, a healthcare practitioner, that's us, may authorize a visit to an IMC, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and f we're also required to send the referral form, not just to the IMC person, but to the um, adjuster. So we are informing the adjuster by paper, in writing, why we're doing this. And if they have a question, and they have in the past, they've had questions, and they'll call and say, we don't think you should do this. Um, some of uh, the adjusters aren't familiar with the IMC process. I've had adjusters say to me, um, I've been doing this for eight years, and I've never heard of anyone doing an IMC before. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> and that's no fault of their own. It's yeah. just, yeah, just, yeah. It's yeah, it's just a case. It could happen, yeah. Yeah. So it's fine. I think we need to recognize and say, no problem. Let me just point you to the right thing. And we'll just tell them, we're just going by the regulations. Tell them the page number if you want. You know, highlight it in your book. And, uh, and just state to them that this is what we're doing. Here's why. And, uh, and, if they, and, and there are cases where sometimes an adjuster will say, well, we're not authorizing this. I need to speak to somebody before we authorize it. Okay, then we need to maybe say, um, understood. Um, could you just explain to me under what section of the regulations that you're going to not permit this? And that's a very clear question to ask. The answer is there are no, there is nothing in the regulation that allows them to deny an IMC if the patient's still in the protocols. But let's let's be kind about it and uh, and acknowledge that maybe they just are are caught in the middle and they're not sure. I don't even know what's going on here. I should speak to my supervisor, and that's fair. Um, but just to ask them to quote, where in the regulations are you are you pointing to when you're asking me to not proceed here? And then if things get you know, particularly un unpleasant, which hopefully they don't. There are compliance officers within the deputy superintendent's office that that we can direct adjusters to to help with uh, kind of alternate 
complaint resolution processes. So those those people do exist. They are there, and they should know the DTPR inside and out as well. And and more often than not, uh, you know, do well. I mean, they defend what's in what is actually written in the in the protocols and in the regulations. That's their that's their job. And then their job is to either help ease compliance or wield the stick that says no you must do this so those processes do exist well i hope you enjoyed the episode it's uh, great having you on the show today uh now if you've been enjoying the new show i'd love for you to leave a review on uh, itunes as this just helps uh, more people find out about the podcast and we'd love to to get your feedback and if you want to check out the show notes uh from the podcast just go to ignitephysio.ca forward slash podcasts and if there's any topics that you want us to cover just uh, shoot us an email at hello at ignitephysio.ca and we'll make sure to get back in touch with you and, and see what we can do there so anyways thanks for joining us on the show today take care all right bye-bye <laughs>